Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back. You're with Greenwashed. I'm Jaspreet Bopperai with my co-host Don Nicholson. And we have back with us John Scary for round two. So John was with us last week and we spoke about structural engineering, engineering standards, or should I say the lack thereof. And the discussion evolved quite a bit down the technical path last week. But this time around, we have John back and we are hoping to begin from where the climate and sustainability issues are taking root into engineering and then let the discussion go where it may. Welcome, John. Uh, Good evening. Good evening. Right. um, So, sorry. The floor is yours. Tell us more. What's happening in engineering? What is unengineering uh, sort of things that are making an appearance there? Well, as I said um, in my last interview, we've had more than two decades of serious problems in structural engineering and other aspects of engineering. And you would think that irrespective of one's political um, leanings, left, right, or whatever you want to call them, that people would want to have technically competent, high productivity engineering and trade sectors. But as I said last time, um, basically that hasn't been a priority. But, um, and I've been working, you know, pretty much half of the last few decades. I've actually spent in my own private time pushing for reform and got nowhere. So you can understand my severe disappointment and outrage, actually, that instead of marching to the sound of the guns of the problems in engineering and the need to maintain them for everyone's benefit, what has been foisted on engineering as a whole and is also coming into structural engineering uh, is the myth of so-called sustainability, which isn't sustainability. We've got the so-called climate emergency and climate change. We've got diversity, equity and inclusion agendas being pushed in. And we've got, a uh, again, a complete distortion of what the Treaty of Waitangi is and to AO and, and to Rayo and identity politics coming in as well. And none of it has... All the things I've talked about are actually, when you investigate them, they're a distortion and a perversion. There's nothing sustainable about the agendas that are being pushed. And also, anyone who's knowledgeable in any of these areas knows that the sort of official politically correct position that's being pushed is actually wrong. And it's not that all of the engineers in New Zealand got together at engineering New Zealand level or all of the structural engineers got together at the structural engineering level and agreed on this, it has basically been implemented as a fait accompli, combined with basically enforced indoctrination at university. And I find it just absolutely shocking. And it is the antithesis of engineering and the scientific method. So, so, John, I've um, you've sent us some data, and it appears that you've been subjected to some quite serious censorship of your opinions within your own uh, CSOC organisation. Are you wanting to flesh that out a bit here? Because uh, it strikes me that 
yeah, yeah, a professional organization that wants to restrict uh, rigorous commentary between uh, members isn't really that uh, that honorable. Um, I'm not sure whether you would perhaps um, describe it as that, but clearly there's something wrong. I, I watched your feed, I read your feedback to that entity. I saw nothing wrong with it, and yet it was refuted or refused. Comments? Well, if I can go back and sort of lay down the history, uh, when I was at university in the late 70s and early 80s, engineers were considered so barbaric that we had to have two semesters of what were called liberal studies, where people would come across from um, other faculties, let's say them the more humane faculties, as lecturers. You know, they would, uh, um, there would be um, a, a two guest lectures a week or whatever. And looking back at it, there were a few who were quite interesting, but definitely the vast majority of the people who came over were what I would now describe as dystopian communists. They just hated Western civilization, and, you know, like they didn't promote um, great artists like Franz Hals or Rembrandt or Benini. Um, they would be promoting sort of horrible modern art and things like that. And most of the ones talking about economics or politics were communists, and most of them clearly didn't have a, a sense of humour. There were a few people from the medical school and a few others. It was quite interesting. But, um, you know, we got through that, and you could differ in your opinions, and it was something we endured and got through. But at engineering school, um, although the vast, you know, we had some, Malaysian Chinese students under the Colombo plan, I think it was, and virtually everyone in the class was male, but it was all about the engineering. Mm. And, and you know, then I, we've had the problems that I've talked about, um, and the biggest problem I, I thought that people had when they started work was not the fact that you were one race or, or sexuality or whatever, it was the fact that you were thrown in the deep end and couldn't get proper training and didn't have um, good people to ask questions of. And if you were good, the stress levels were right, would rise. But then about 2000, and it's been a bit slow coming into structural engineering, but definitely um, in 2019, I was one of about 40 practising civil and structural engineers who was invited along to a workshop at the um, Civil and Environmental Department at Auckland University. Because over time, all engineers used to be civil engineers in the 18th century, and as new specialties came along, they separated off. And it's about time that, because of specialisation, that structural engineers basically did a BE structural. So um, we had this big workshop with uh, some members of the faculty and these 40 civil and structural engineers. And we were discussing as to whether there should be a BE structural. But at the start of the um, workshop, six subjects were put up on the board, which were, I think, all engineering students have to study, and they were off limits for discussion. And three of the six were things like project management and contract law, which all engineers have to know something about. 
But items one, two, and three were Maori studies, women's studies, and climate change. So we had the discussion for about two hours on whether structural should should go off, and then um, uh, the it was about ready to close down the thing. And I put up my hand and I said, I have uh, two controversial comments to make. And someone in the audience said, everything I say is controversial, which is a good um, a compliment. But I, I let the Maori aspect pass. And I want to come back to that in a moment, um, but uh, later. But um, I talked about these sort of woman issues and I said, well, where on earth does it say that 50.1% of engineers have to be women? And one of the lecturers said, oh, it's not about that. It's about 33% of engineers being women. And it's about dealing with all of the discrimination and, and obstacles that they have to put up with, etc." to which I said, rubbish. And then the person tried to, uh, it was about to close down the meeting. I said, I've got another point to raise. And I said, this thing about climate change and all of the students have to do a course in climate change and I'm sure if they dissented with the official position and Auckland University has a position on climate change they don't have a position on fractional reserve banking or many other things but they have a position on climate change and um, and I said that you know for 10 years now, it's been proven beyond all reasonable doubt that the effect of carbon dioxide on the temperature of the earth is to all intents and purposes zero. And if the faculty continues pushing this nonsense, I will challenge all of them to a public debate for four hours and I will win. Hmm. And one of the young engineers down the front said, oh no, no, it's not about climate change, it's about sustainability. sustainability. And if we don't, if the... Um, uh, you know, department doesn't align with the uh, value set of the young people, people want to, want to be civil engineers. And I said, no, what was up there was climate change, not sustainability. No one here is more of a greenie than I am. And if you wanted to green the planet, you would quadruple the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And one of the lecturers was sitting next to a colleague of mine, and I heard the colleague, my colleague say, because it makes the grass grow. And I can only assume that the lecturer was saying why. I mean, it's unbelievable the number of people who do not know that CO2 is the fundamental basis of life on Earth through photosynthesis, whether it's on land or in the oceans. Without it, there would be a few unusual life forms which would survive, but largely mm. we would be a lifeless planet. And it was interesting, as I left the uh, um, workshop, one of the lecturers came up and said, it's interesting to hear a, an alternative opinion. Well, that was sort of a rare thing. So that was in 2019. And I knew climate change was coming to structural engineering in the form of embedded carbon. Um, the idea that um, if you use things like steel, um, it takes a lot of energy to make it, and this is very bad, but things like timber will be good. Mm -hmm. And we were going to have to do uh, account for the amount of embedded carbon in our structures and all of this stuff. And I think it's we should always be efficient, and certainly in the operation of a building, if you can truly make it a, a thermal mass building which properly traps sunlight and doesn't need much heating and you're efficient, that's really good. But basically, it should be 
up to people to use and driven by market things like that. And I, I'm a regular contributor to the CSOC Journal, so I contacted the editor and said I, I wanted to write a couple of papers, and one would be on, I called it politely, the climate fallacy. Now, today I would just call it the climate fraud because that's or the climate lie because that's what it is. And going back to the early 2000s, I used to see things like Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, and I didn't know anything, and I thought it was really bad. But then I bought Aircon by Ian Wishart, and I got to the second diagram, and as soon as I saw that, it was like, this is all nonsense. It can't be true. And so I, I um, studied from there. And um, so it took a while to write uh, this paper, and it was for the education of um, structural engineers, bearing in mind that students for quite a few years now have had to pay to be indoctrinated in a course on climate change at university. And if they dissented, I'm sure they would be failed, even if they were able to quote a number of Nobel Prize winning physicists, etc. So I wrote and uh, I, I produced this paper, which is about 20 pages long, called Climate Fallacy. And I went through the whole thing. And, um, uh, you know, I'm just explaining the whole lot, how it's just nonsense how um, if you look at the historic record and you've had guests on like Ian Plymer and so on, and it's just um, absolute nonsense. And when I gave it to the editor, he, he got around to reading it and emailed back and said, John, what a read, definitely grounding material. I thought, fine, he's going to publish it. So, but then um, the management committee basically said, uh, banned its publication on the grounds that it was outside the scope of engineering. And then a few months later at the CSOC conference in 2021, one of the afternoon sessions was devoted to climate change and embedded carbon, etc. And if your listeners will bear with me for a moment, one of the papers that was accepted and published had in it these statements. Scientific consensus is that exceeding two degrees Celsius average global heating due to CO2 concentration exceeding 450 parts per million is more than 60% likely to result in catastrophic climate change. Extinction of the Great Barrier Reef, melting of the Greenland ice sheet, die-off of around 50% of wild species, sea level rise and extreme weather that could threaten about 80% of human-made structures. To stay within this failure limit of 450 parts per million atmospheric carbon, 90% of the known economically producible hydrocarbon must remain in the ground. So according to the CSOC Management Committee and the CSOC hierarchy, all of that is within the scope of structural engineering. But when I write, and say that if we exceed 450 parts per million, we will see almost no temperature increase whatsoever, that the Great Barrier Reef is doing fine, that the Greenland ice sheet is not melting, that wild species are doing fine other than hunting or pollution from plastics or whatever, and that sea level isn't rising, there isn't any more extreme weather, that is classed as out, being outside the scope of structural engineering. The only difference between the two is whether you tow the party line or you don't. So as a result of what went on at, the, um, at this uh, conference and, and a, num 
a number of papers. Admittedly, most of them were concentrating on um, assessing the amount of embedded carbon in a building because uh, what the methodology goes that, for example, if you build a steel building and put a ton of steel in, it's taken so many thousand kilograms of equivalent carbon dioxide emissions to produce the energy to mine the iron ore uh, and the other ingredients to refine the steel, to fabricate it, to paint it, to transport it and to install it. So things like steel and glass and plasterboard are very bad. They have high embedded carbon per tonne. Then you have concrete, which is almost as bad. And then you have this wonderful thing called timber, which not only uh, is low in carbon, it's actually negative carbon. They claim that if you put timber in a building, you're actually uh, eliminating carbon out, carbon dioxide out of the environment. And apparently they do that by a couple of things. First of all, they do with when you calculate the embedded carbon dioxide for steel, that goes back to the fabrication of the equipment that mines the iron ore, the um, coal and the limestone. Whereas I think timber starts counting after the logs have left the sawmill. Convenient. And then, of course, they say that uh, it, it, the, the timber itself is made up out of carbon sucked out of the atmosphere, and so it's a store. Now, timber is an, a really excellent building material. It's really useful for building houses. Um, it, it's, some structures really benefit from it, like library structures and that with exposed timber and so on. But it isn't a sustainable building material in that. In the old days, if you were using large pieces of pine or um, hardwood and you put your building together with hardwood pegs holding it together and you had wattle and daub, and as long as you didn't put some lead or cadmium paint on it, after the building was finished, you could chop these big pieces of timber up for smaller pieces of timber. You could burn it in your fireplace. You could burn it and cook. Um, make it into charcoal for cooking over. You could compost it or burn it down and put it into your garden or onto your farmland. Modern timber has to be, it's often chopped up and glued together. It's treated with preservatives to stop it rotting. It's often varnished or painted or covered in um, fire-resistant paint. It's full of nails and nail plates and everything like that. Basically, when a, a timber building is finished, you can only put it into landfill, whereas steel can be recycled infinitely and even concrete. You can break it down and use it as aggregate and save the reinforcing steel. And um, so um, getting back to the... Uh, uh, well, well, can we, we just butt in there? Sorry, John. Um, tell, cutting to the chase, what does all that achieve? What what the heck does it achieve, all this uh, assessment of carbon embedding, uh, the whole lot of it? What does it really achieve? Because you talked about efficiency before. That's what clients want to know. That's what society wants to know. They want to know about efficient resource use. What does all this add but compliance and cost? Well, the argument is that the built environment uh, is a major producer of emissions in Western countries. Therefore, um, techniques have to be done to try and um, rehabilitate existing buildings and also reduce the energy usage in the production of new buildings. And if I was still able 
to get letters published to the CSOC journal. Um, and I'll get back to it in a minute. But I would um, make the comment that China has over 1,100 coal-fired power stations. And they're, bringing, they're designing and bringing online new ones to add to their stock every 10 days or so. And the question I would ask is, are the Chinese structural engineers involved in this doing embedded carbon accounting for these new power stations? Are they using low-carbon concrete? If not, why not? And are they sourcing zero-carbon steel, if need be, importing it from Sweden? And, of course, they are not. So what do the communist Chinese use their 1,100-plus coal-fired power stations for? They use it to make windmills and solar panels, which they export to the Western world, and the suckers use them. So, um, and... And, and again, also, in order to meet these insulation requirements, you have the use of ever-increasing and often massive amounts of polystyrene and fibreglass, which are hardly sustainable and eco-friendly mm. products. You see polystyrene being used as insulation on a, a job site. It's chopped up and all the bits and pieces are flying off into the Pacific Ocean. A free styrene molecule is not good. And again, as a country, if we were really interested in it, we should have been developing things like really aerated concrete or maybe uh, insulation boards using um, pumice or something like that, some eco-friendly products as well. But you have the nonsense now where new houses, even if they're made of of concrete and block have to be basically sat on polystyrene. The load-bearing elements have to sit on polystyrene, even if they're 600 millimetres below the ground or whatever. So in response to, um, you know, the fact that I had not been allowed to publish my climate fallacy paper, but clearly um, things like talking about the Greenland ice sheets and the Great Barrier Reef was within, they declared it was within the realms of structural engineering, I resubmitted my paper and said I expected it to be published. And again, it was banned on the basis that it was outside the scope of structural engineering. And one of the statements made was, um, well, two sort of statements are made. First of all is uh, we are ordered to do it as if that is the law or whatever and we just have to obey. But that is not what is put into all the literature. It's all about there's a crisis, we're going to save the world, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and the other thing is that it's like um, we're not climate scientists, we can't question it. But when I point out that there are thousands upon thousands of climate scientists and people in related fields who repudiate the scare, there is no answer. So basically, um, my second attempt to get publication was banned, and I, I had to move heaven and earth to find nine other engineers who would sign up to um, force a special general meeting, and it was held in conditions that I am not happy with. And then there was a vote, and we were defeated 76% to 24%. But one of the founding purposes of the Structural Engineering Society is to facilitate discussion between members. And this um, climate um, hysteria has been foisted 
very quickly without any debate or discussion. And um, some of the comments that were made during the, um, the special general meeting, one prominent person said that I was, without having read my article, it was, I was guilty of misinformation, and if it was published, he would resign immediately. And that wasn't the only one. And one, another person, and these are otherwise intelligent people, another person said, the United Nations, the IPCC, the New Zealand government and Auckland Council have said there's a climate emergency, therefore we have to accept it. So the Auckland Council is an expert on climate change, but an engineer can't do reading and, and answer back, that is not permitted. And so um, you have now many consulting firms have their own carbon um, departments um, and some firms are actually employing carbon experts to do the carbon auditing and um, it is very frustrating and there was apparently one webinar run by someone from MIMBY and this uh, young engineer apparently said we aim to be the sole source of truth on these issues. Where well, where have we heard that, that before, John? We will be the single source of truth. But it's amazing. I'm listening to you. You saw this back in the late 70s, early 80s, this, what else do I call it? This rotten education. And one wonders 40 years later, how you know badly it's taken uh, root. How many engineers, uh, John, do you have an idea? Pass out every year in New Zealand? Oh, I think it's um, increased greatly for my time, I th uh, I'm going to guess about 800 Okay, in, from the universities in the different fields. In the different fields. As you were talking, I was also looking at, you know, you're talking structural engineering for a layperson like me. When I refer to an engineer, I'm referring to buildings and, you know, generally safety, security, because basic needs of life, food, clothing, shelter. And I see that there are noises now being made that the Building Act that's purpose was, primary purpose was people can use buildings safely and without endangering the health. Buildings have attributes that contribute appropriately, appropriately to health, physical independence and well-being of people who use them. The Green Building Society is saying that we are proposing amendments that will change the principle and purpose of the Building Act to clarify that climate change is a key consideration. And yet they have trouble publishing your your paper there? Well, the mind? I think the main reason they haven't published it is because they can't answer it. They know that uh, with me they're going to be up for an argument. Mm -hmm. And I didn't put in uh, all the footnotes and everything, but it was basically presenting a counter-argument for people to go off and question it. And, you know, um, there are the... Aristotle's logical fallacies were actually written in Latin, and, and three of the key things which are constantly besetting and bedeviling engineering are the argument from authority, the argument of the consensus, and the argument against the man. Well, we have had um, many um, sort of um, declarations from authority in New Zealand, and and, and like ministers saying everything's fine and building a construction, it's been wrong. We've also had several um, um, uh, um, consensus uh, positions in structural engineering in New Zealand, and they've been completely wrong. One was that these ductile frames with precast floors led the world in seismic engineering. 
those buildings are now considered severe seismic hazards. Also, with a particular type of steel connection, there was a consensus that the eccentricity in it didn't have to be considered. Well, now it does because it led to almost the collapse of, of one building. And if you go back to the 1980s, I think uh, their names were Warren and Marshall. These were two Australian medical researchers. And if you're old, you know, um, Don and I would remember from drama, you know, movies and TV series, it always used to be considered that uh, stomach ulcers were due to stress and maybe spicy food. And these researchers said, no, we believe it's due to a particular bacterium. And they couldn't get published in any peer-reviewed journal. Today, they if uh, they would be crushed and and driven off social media and so on. And yet 20 years later, they won the Nobel Prize for medicine because they were right. Mm. And as one person said, and he wasn't agreeing with, we, with me one way or the other, he said that, you know, I've contributed um, lots of things to engineering and the and the um and the journal and i don't usually produce rubbish so it should have been published and then there could be a debate and there hasn't been and when you look at some of this nonsense that's been put in the field and and one of the classics is about maoris and polynesians and climate change a report was written for auckland council to supposedly aid them in planning about climate change and it said that um, sea levels, say by 2100, could rise between 250 millimetres and two metres. Well, how can you plan on that? that it wasn't like they said, well, there's a probability of so many percent for this and so many percent for that, etc. But another statement, it gets repeated all the time, and yet I was severely criticised for repeating in my climate fallacy paper. They say that Maori and Pacific Islanders or Pacifica are most vulnerable to rising temperatures. Well, I might not know much, but I know that Polynesians came out of the coastal areas of Southeast Asia, where it's like 30 degrees and 100% humidity all the time. And they went east across the tropics where it's like hot. In fact, in those areas, it's a one place in the world where humans can run around naked and not suffer from hypothermia or anything. And you have, for example, Samoans and Tongans and, and, and uh, Melanesians from Fiji. They live in a place where it's like 30 degrees most of the time. Maybe, I can't remember the exact figures. And then they'll migrate to Auckland where it's like 15 degrees colder or more for every equivalent day of the year. And apparently in Auckland, if the temperatures rise from, say, 9 degrees in winter or 20 degrees in, in summer by 2 degrees, the Polynesians will be dropping like flies from heat stroke. But they go, go and retire back to the islands or visit there where it's 15 degrees warmer and they have no problems at all. It is just nonsense. And yet this is the garbage that is put forward all the time. And one lawyer who was engaged to justify not publishing my letter really criticised me because of those comments. And what he also said was that I was attacking climate change science. No, I was presenting the climate change science. Well, isn't it interesting, Jasper, um, 
we've we've let John um, tell his story and cut tonight, and it's normally me that's ranting and uh, raving on about <laughs> this stuff. Uh, I'm feeling really good, John, that uh, we've got someone else who just sees it for what it is. Um, it's a bit of it's a big rot, but the language that's in some of these documents you've sent through to us, uh, it's so common. It's so common talking about transition engineering um, and what other words were there uh, in some of the papers. Uh, hang on, I'll just get them. Um, uh, oh, well, it was around the 2030. I've just lost it momentarily. The no, 2030. I'm amazed at all the stuff that they're putting in there. Engineering to my layperson's brain is something which is very precise, yes. described scientifically. I mean, if I change tack here and my brother who is in the mechanized infantry, so sort of doing this, you know, operating BMPs in the Indian Army, Bavai Machina Pagotes, I was looking at his CV and he was, t- I mean, the points that he's written as a CEO there, commanding officer, achieved unparalleled training standards, including 100% accuracy in firing of high-tech anti-tank weapon systems for three years in a row developed innovative means of obstacle negotiation by my combat vehicles to reduce water crossing time by 50%. There is measurements, there is numbers, there is achievement there, which can be quantified. All when you can't quantify something for me, and especially as an engineer, it's, it's, it's bloody scary. You guys are supposed to manage basic infrastructure, keep us safe. And what the heck are you doing? Well, absolutely. I, I, sorry, I've got that heading to butt in, building a design mindset for the 2020, 2030 decade of disruption and leadership. That's what I was looking for. I mean, and then you talk about transition engineering. I mean, you've got a job scheme forever for these people. What are they going to do by 2050? Well, I think it was that one that I thought after I uh, my uh, paper had been banned for the second time, when that was, I think it was that, paper that was written in uh, an article in the CSOC journal, I thought, great, um, I can respond to this because the content of it moved far and wide, talking about social issues and all of this stuff. And, you know, uh, all sectors of the economies and societies of every nation on earth, quoting Winston Churchill and all of this stuff. So I, I thought, yes, this is my opportunity. So I wrote a two-page letter in. The editor was happy with it, but again, the editorial board, in the first draft, they crossed half of it out, saying it was not relevant, uh, and then they crossed the other half out and wouldn't publish it. So facetiously, I wrote to them and said, well, clearly I was on target with my response, and it was just the language that I used in my wording that had prevented publication. Can you please tell me how I should word things in future to have publication? And they came back and said, the only things that will be published are um, methods to account for carbon, and the only discussion that will be allowed or debate will be whether there are defects in any of those methods. Gosh. Now, um, getting back to uh, like engineering and science, um, I know Stalin used to shoot a lot of um, engineers, I'm not sure why, but generally people like Hitler and Stalin wanted good engineers. But it is these dystopian communists who who push identity and their strange things into things like science. And I believe in the 60s in communist China, um, 
the teaching of quantum mechanics was banned because it violated dialectical materialism. But then they were told that they couldn't have atomic weapons without uh, quantum mechanics, so then they allowed quantum mechanics to be uh, taught. But otherwise, it's a, a, dysto- a communist dystopian tray that these sorts of um, ideological issues get pushed in onto technical issues. Mm-hmm. And when, um, you know, with engineering, like, you know, Bernoulli's equation written by, developed by an Italian, it's all about, like, um, flow and pressure and mass. It's, it's mathematics. There's no um, Italian pressure or Chinese pressure or whatever. It's just pressure or mass or whatever. It is identity neutral. It's mathematics. It's identity neutral. Now, obviously... Uh, I would add interrupt there. There is a report out from Harvard about how maths is a colonial construct because mathematics <laughs> professors, teachers are insisting on just binary answers. It's either right or it's wrong. And there's this full report. I'll flick it to you another time, uh, John. But they actually argue that maths has become a racist construct and it's not inclusive enough for a diversity of answers. Now, when I, I homeschool, so when I was teaching my daughter English, you know, you just realize when you're teaching it that it ain't very simple to teach. Read and read, same spelling. And, you know, you pronounce them differently. And when we did maths, she said, oh, she says, at least things make sense here, you know. What it is one answer, and I know whether it's right or wrong, and I'm not guessing myself. But they even have trouble with this, so I think we are in big, big trouble here. Nothing it is as it seems anymore. And even someone like Einstein, who I think thought a lot of himself, never said something like, "I am science. I am the truth. You cannot question me." He <laughs> said, "All you know." I mean, he would have admitted too. His theories were like an improved approximation, which is, and things have gone on since then. But he said, um, "No amount of an experimentation can prove my theories, but one properly conducted experiment can disprove them." And similarly, I think there's a thing called the standard formula, which is like the equation of everything. And yet the, the brilliant physicists who deal with it say, we don't think it's finished yet. When we look at it, we think there's a way to go. And um, the um, and and again, this identity stuff is absolute nonsense because um, you know, like if you push it to its illogical conclusion, it used to be that left well, left-handers, I think, are about 10% of the population. Mm. But typically 20% of engineers have been left-handed, mainly because left-handers tend to be better at spatial issues and maybe mathematics. If you impose identity politics, it means half the left-handers have to be driven out of engineering because there's too many of them. It's just absolute nonsense. And another example, I know um, four engineers from an Asian country, and by Asia I mean the entire continent. And two of them are ex they're all nice people, and you could effectively say they're from the same race and same religion. Mm-hmm. Two of them are excellent engineers and in their own way have done more than just their job. They have contributed to the profession in New Zealand above and beyond their normal employment. The other two are nice people, but really have not been able to perform as engineers by any stretch of the imagination. 
One of them actually has a lot of common sense and is more sensible on ordinary day issues than quite a few New Zealanders. But you basically have an identity. Two of them are really good engineers. Two of them are not good engineers. So it's just further proof that this nonsense of identity politics is completely meaningless. It's about your ability as an engineer. And it goes on where... In the engineering magazine, which I said, you know, you can't get technical articles published. They actually have articles on people's sexuality and how people (laughs) wanted to go off to university to explore their sexuality. Now, I won't make any comments on that, but, you know, as an engineer, we are people. And in any particular time, you may have money worries or personal issues or whatever, but it's got nothing to do with the engineering itself. Um, you know, I, if the reinforcing fits together, it does or it doesn't. If I the, was reading this article, John, that you sent, Increasing Inclusivity on Engineering at Z's Insights page by Alexandra Johnson. So it begins talking about a Walder Posthumus, a, pa- a passionate advocate for lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, questioning intersex, the full, the full spectrum who has moved to New Zealand from South Africa with his husband three years ago, who completed a Bachelor of Engineering in South Africa, the University of Pretoria, but felt restricted there because of it being a more, uh, you know, less tolerant place. But out here, he says he looked for an organization that had the rainbow tick. And then, ever since then, he's filled roles within Oricon's diversity, inclusion, and equity program, including co-coordinator of the program and more recently the the strategy lead for the LGBTQIA plus pillar which along with which is one of five along with what you said the Aomari gender accessibility disability and cultural they are the some of the statements in this are very very odd because ideally once you've joined a profession what he's saying is he says we need to attract more not just young people, he's qualified it by saying we need to attract more rainbow young people into engineering by getting LGBTQIA plus embedded into STEM, you know, science, tech, engineering, maths at university and school. He says there is not yet LGBTQIA plus groups going to school to encourage LGBTQIA plus people into STEM. Talk about nonsense. You just encourage all kids into STEM, don't you? Regardless of where their uh, sexuality lies. And I'm uh, uh, sort of just as an offside. You said more uh, left-handed people get into engineering. My daughter's a left-handed. And maybe that's why she detests the languages and arts. But maths is a thing. But yeah, what's this person talking about? So if Say my daughter is not, I don't know for now, she's just eight. So we don't talk about all of this. But if she is not LGBTQIA+, if a group grows in, will they not encourage her into STEM? Well, surely the key thing about being interested, I I detest STEM. Um, It's a a catchphrase put forward by politicians and that won't deal with the, the sort of basics. But, you know, people should go into um an area where they have an abiding interest. And one of the problems all young people have, I think, is you might find something particularly interesting when you're 16 and 17, but to spend your entire life at it is another thing. But 
the key thing about going into a mathematical field is that your brain enjoys it, that you, mm. you really enjoy it, similarly in engineering or whatever. And, you know, I've always spent a lot of time trying to look for good books and good worked examples. And if I'm in a visit a company, I'll, I'll look through the drawings that are there and look for, for tips or look at things I don't like. And I've never once said, I wonder if the person who drew this is in a wheelchair or is a homosexual. It's just about the engineering. Mm. And, you know, um, and I think I mentioned it last time. I once, you know, I've invited people along to meetings who are women and Maoris and things like that, but I invited them for their competence and their character. And yet at the meeting, the people I'm meeting only seem to be interested in the identity of the people there and not the substantive issues we wanted to discuss. Diversity and, and capability is a different thing. Yeah, and I mean, one example I think is, uh, one comparison I think, well, sorry, uh, just getting on to this issue of tuturity. Now, some people in recent years um, standing for election to the Engineering New Zealand Board say that they will be true to the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi, etc. What they are true to is a misinterpretation pushed forward by um, certain political groups and a so-called commercial elite. Because if you read the 1922 book by um, uh, Apirana, Sir Apirana Nata, he explains what the Maori version of the treaty is, which the Maori accepted Queen Victoria as the sovereign. They became full British subjects, and basically there was equal law in New Zealand, including equal property rights, and that is it. So, again, these engineers have no problem proclaiming um, things like the Treaty of Waitangi, well, but what do they know? Are, are they like constitutional lawyers or whatever? And the other thing is if they'd actually consulted a lot of constitutional lawyers, they would have been told that the interpretation that they are pushing is completely wrong and cannot be justified. But the fundamental thing of any profession is there has to be free and open debate and these things have just been pushed and they are completely wrong. And, and, you know, the shocking thing, and I think you've talked about this before, uh, is the response to the Michael Kelly um, study of what it would take for New Zealand to go net carbon zero by uh, 2050. And again, um, you know, if there's, no, if there's no electricity, it's important to structural engineers because if you don't have electricity, how can you have a crane? How can you have welding, et cetera? Now, I have seen the Romans did have some pretty impressive timber-based cranes which are operated by humans in a drum like hamsters, but they could only lift two and a half tonnes and they couldn't lift it very far. So, But on the other hand, if, if all of these other people pushing this agenda want to talk about energy and, 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 and so on and, and building windmills and so on, that's fine. But if someone like me wants to question it, it's outside the scope. So what did Michael Kelly determine? And he's a warmest. He thinks that carbon dioxide will cause some observable effects, but nothing like an existential threat. And he found that um, for New Zealand to go net carbon zero by 2050, it is technically not feasible. Oh, sorry. In um, electrical generation, transport, home heating and industrial heating. It is technically not feasible. 
it, we would waste $550 billion trying it, and New Zealand alone would have to consume between 7 and 10% of the world's uh, lithium carbonate, cobalt, neodymium, etc. It's absolute nonsense. And yet even that is not put forward to the government as technically correct advice. Well, it's unethical not to tell a client what the consequences are of their actions. And so just today, there was a conference uh, in Auckland with uh, uh, James Shaw speaking about going net carbon zero in concrete. And that was proclaimed that this is readily achievable, blah, 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 but it isn't. Yeah, well, even even uh, in the last 24 hours, we've had a story about uh, BlackRock funding uh, relative to perhaps developing green hydrogen. And the very next day, um, there was Dr. Wood, um, Minister Wood, releasing the NB reports uh, on engine, uh, energy storage systems and the Lake Onslow concept um, and concluded that green hydrogen wasn't viable. I mean, we're all over the shop with this stuff. And I suppose you've just got to, as Jasper always tells me, follow the money. And there it is. It's uh, it's uh, no one's trusting the evolution of ideas and marketplace activity. It's all about control and and um, direction. And I'm just reading one of your papers that you sent me. They talk about, um, I'll just flick back to it, Wicked. Uh, just quickly, I'll just go back to it. It's the Wicked Problems. Essential activity, wicked problem. So one of the essential activities is private cars and running on petrol, and but that's a wicked problem. Uh, housing with concrete floor slabs, wicked problem. And you go down further, and they've got plenty of graphs and things in this, this document. Um, they talk about energy return on investment, and the arts is at the top of the triangle. The arts what? is at the what? top of the triangle. It just makes no sense to me. But further down... Um, through this, they get back to basics, which is where I am. They talk about um, business as usual. They talk about technology wedges. They talk about efficiency wedges. Fantastic. And they talk about the future course, um, which is surely all we're ever after is the evolution of ideas. And uh, they use the in-time methodology by Krumdiek in 2020, by the look of it. I mean, I just wish these people, I mean, it's good to have good to have um, ideas and it's good to have um, cross-pollination of, of ideas, I suppose that's the term. But this stuff, this writing reports and the ingratiating of so many people that don't add any value to the, re you know, the real output um, of, of society, um, they just I just wonder how we can keep, keep endorsing them. I, I call them non-jobs. But anyway, um, We've covered a whole lot of bases, and I know that uh, the other side of all this is I've not got my head around why we need to develop, for instance, queer spaces, especially. Yeah, we talked about special spaces, but there's I see in some of your documents have sent me, there is people talking about building um, spaces for different genders, uh, effectively, or people that term themselves queer, and they want to have special building styles. I mean... Where does this end up? It's just I, I'm I'm just wanting to go into the same building as you, John. Well, um, Jasper. <laughs> certainly, um, 
the there's been actually a deliberate plan or ploy for decades to have terrible architecture in Western worlds to dep- and art to depress the populace. And it's in TV programs as well. But also, um, uh, you know, the appalling planning and the horrific suburbs they're building now in infill housing, et cetera. Oh. But getting back to BlockRap, Sorry, BlackRock. My understanding is they've got two billion to invest, say, building uh, windmills in New Zealand. Well, that will increase our power prices, discreet, uh, increase the risk of blackouts and brownouts. But where does the foreign exchange come from to repatriate the profits that they expect? Because it used to be everyone in New Zealand until the mid 1980s understood the importance of foreign exchange. And having basically, and also the reason a country like Switzerland is rich is because it has the invisibles flowing in, whereas New Zealand is a country which has the invisibles flowing out, massively so. Now, BlackRock, I don't know if it's trillions or hundreds of billions of ordinary, decent American working class pension funds they have under management, but they invest an awful lot of their money in communist China. I bet in communist China, they don't say you've got to close down all your coal-fired power stations and build windmills. And by the way, we'll build them for you. And the absolute insanity, um, like for power generation, um, I listened to a chap in America called Dave Walsh, who is an expert in basically, you know, his whole career has been about um, building um, gas-fired, coal-fired nuclear plants, and he's an expert in the American energy supply. And you've got the situation in Germany, for example, where they have followed this green madness and their power prices are seven times what they are in the United States. Germany is deindustrializing. And finally, the Germans are waking up and voting for a party that repudiates the climate scare and everything. But in staunch Republican states like Florida, South Carolina, and Texas, they are currently closing down coal-fired power stations and building windmills and vast areas of solar power. And according to Dave Walsh, it's a couple of things. Um, you know, all these um, hangers-on and, 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 and the lawyers and the bankers and everything – they don't make any money from having an existing efficient power plant. But if you're constantly churning and changing things over, they're getting fees and commissions, etc. But they also have these, um, and as he points out, windmills basically work 38% of the time. As Brian Leyland's pointed out, he's calculated that the backup for windmills costs 70 times as much as the wind power itself, which is horrifically expensive. Even in Florida, Solar only works about five hours a day. And yet, they are cl- by closing down the coal, which is cheap, and putting in um, windmills and solar, which is horrifically expensive, because they're guaranteed a return on their investment, they get to triple or quintuple their power charges and their profits. But mm. they're destroying the productive base of the states to generate it. South Carolina has benefited from Germany, German companies setting up in South Carolina to take advantage of cheap coal to manufacture German products for the American market. They're going to lose it. 
And it gets even worse. Dave Walsh said that the EPA, which is acting way outside its constitutional um, remit, they've um, now ordered that all of the coal-fired and gas-fired power stations in America have to sequester the carbon dioxide they produce, or they have to transition to burn hydrogen. Now, I think to produce hydrogen from electrolysis, it's only about, you need about two and a half to three times the energy to put in to create the hydrogen than you get from burning it. So in order to produce the hydrogen to replace the current coal and gas plants, they're going to have to build three times as many coal or gas plants to produce the hydrogen. It's just insane. It doesn't, none of this adds up. And, you know, you're talking about the US, John. I just look closer to home. Marston Point, we've closed it, right? And now we have BlackRock, since we were talking about it, BlackRock, and I'm sure others will follow, come in in their wake. But no one is talking about the fact that this week or the last week, a U.S. Congressional Select Committee sent letters to BlackRock and Larry Fink saying that they're investigating them because they have been investing into companies currently to the tune of 429 million, so over half a billion US, into companies in PRC, People's Republic of China, that are building weapons for the People's Liberation Army and acting directly against American interests. This has happened at the same time this inquiry is going on in the US, while we are you know, laying out the red carpet for this, the world's biggest asset manager here. And we expect uh, things to go well after self-sabotaging our own, uh, you know, energy independence by mothballing Marston Point. We're we doing the exact same thing. Well, that would just be a specific aspect of BlackRock because they mm-hmm. invest tri- um, they invest untold billions in communist China and so, yeah. so other companies. And you also have, um, other vehicles there, but even the sort of so-called, a lot of the, you know, there's some bad Republicans and some good Republicans in America, and the Republicans always let themselves down in the Senate or congressional hearings because they say that America has had the largest reduction in emissions because they've got rid of coal and they've gone to gas. Well, who cares? Why not burn the coal? Because in the West with the strippers that strip out the particulates and they strip out the sulfur, it is very, very, very clean burning. And, you know, when they want to show the shock horror pictures of all of this pollution from a coal-fired plant, they either go to a place in Asia where they don't have the strippers or they will show a cooling tower and what they're looking at is the steam coming off, not the smoke. But and New Zealand has enormous reserves, and lately I've been trying to push on the political side, um, and one of the keystones of it would be using the enormous quantities of lignite in Southland to build thermal power plants in Southland and probably put industry down there to take advantage of it. And we have enormous coal reserves. We also have um, gas reserves, and we have some pretty good liquid fuel reserves as well. So we we should be taking advantage of that in New Zealand, because as Brian Leyland will tell you, we are teetering on the brink of brownouts and blackouts, and we have overpriced electricity at the moment, 
and it's only going to get worse. And one of the worst things in America too, if I interpret Dave Walsh right, they replace um, um, uh, the um, when they use windmills or solar to replace a coal-fired power plant, they do it on the basis of when it's operating. So they say we're putting in so many megawatts to replace so many megawatts. But when you take into account the fact that the wind and solar is only available part of the time, they're actually significantly decreasing their generation capacity. Hmm. And it can only be by design um, and to a large extent. But again, the decline, you've got these vested interests milking it for subsidies and making it uh, money and transaction costs and everything, and they're destroying the goose that lays the golden egg, the productive sector that generates the wealth for them to become rich. Maybe that's how they will go to the post-Anthropocene period, Mark, that you mentioned, you know, post-human <laughs> influence. That's how that's we'll get this. That's the transition. That's the transition. <laughs> Gosh. We're uh, building back better. One uh, one uh, paper at a time, one conference at a time, aren't we? <laughs> one working group at a time. Yeah. John, if there's one thing, uh, you know, I think our urban audience would be interested in, it's can you translate for us all these green norms and carbon accounting and everything that's being now pushed into engineering? How is this going to affect urban, you know, property development or housing stock and so on, what can people ex expect from this? Because I know you spoke about those soulless buildings that are now going up and depressing architecture. I've seen those myself, high density and in some places just literally, you know, you think of New Zealand, much of it empty and yet we are cramming everyone there. But generally in the terms of costs and pricing and where, where is that going to go? Well, it's already hitting us because um, the compliance documents for H1 of the building code, which is like insulation, mm. they've now been increased drastically. So vast amounts of insulation have to be put into houses, et cetera, which I'm sure will add cost. And um, But there's also another thing. And Jaspreet, you're the best one in the country at exposing Agenda 2030 and when you go around and you explain it very well and you've got the um, receipts, as they say, you've got the evidence and the recordings. And I, I believe, based on something which was mentioned in a meeting I attended, and this is outside the conf what the meeting was about, so therefore I do not think there was any confidentiality. And it was dropped that MIMBY is working on operational energy. And operationally, I asked questions and I said, well, is that sort of modelling how people use houses? And no, it will be a rationing of energy per New Zealand household, presumably based on um, people in the household. Um, and you will get a ration of energy for the year. And if you use it up by October, tough luck, you don't have any energy for the rest of the year. This is absolute nonsense. It, they, are, they are creating these fake crises and fake shortages and using it as justification for the policies which have created the shortages in the first place. And as Michael Cal Kelly pointed out to a meeting of the Wellington um, City Council, he said the only country in the world that... Uh, basically complies with the net carbon zero agenda is North Korea. <laughs> and if you look at a picture of the 
Earth at night, every country's got the lights on except North Korea. Now, I'm sure Kim Jong-il and the you know, his, the, his clique have their lights on, but basically the country is starving and uh, it's blacked out. Yeah, what a future. Mm. What a future. Um, none of this um, effectively seems to resonate with lots of people we work with. I mean, they just don't listen and think about this stuff. And, yeah, we've got so many, all of us will have friends that work in the industry, uh, the electricity sector or the energy, uh, engineering sector or just in the local government and central government sector. How the heck do we get some normality back in all this uh, stuff? Because just changing the government ain't going to do it. No. That's not going to do it. No, every, um, in, maybe apart from um, a, a little bit from Maureen Pugh, Every MP is is quite disgusting on this. And what really shocks me is, um, Don, you've talked about uh, Van Wingarden and Happer and, mm. and you know, their studies of methane and nitrous oxide. Mm. And and um, Judith Collins and knows for sure it's, it's all crap. And um, David Seymour should know. And yet what do they say? Oh, we can reduce our methane emissions by going for and I hate the word genetic engineering. To me, it's genetic mutation of animals, gut bacteria and grasses to get rid of what is a perfectly natural product that if it was to double, which would take hundreds of years in, in, in methane, would lead to a maximum warming of 0 0.06 degrees Celsius. Mm. It's absolute garbage. And again, um, you know, I'll ask very intelligent engineers, you know, ordinarily very intelligent, and I'll just say, Tell me what, and even now, you know, just a few days ago, tell me what the most dominant greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are methane, uh, oxygen, uh, nitrous oxide, uh, carbon dioxide, and they have no idea it's water vapour. Water vapour. And, um, and I know that Ardern and Shaw and bureaucrats and that have been sent time and again several official error reports to the IPCC. My understanding is that the IPCC, if it sent an error report, has to acknowledge receipt within one month and has to repute, refute the, the paper and, and theory behind the uh, error report within three months or they have to adjust their reports and their recommendations. And the group of... Um, scientists and engineers called the Argonauts who have identified the uh, appalling feedback mistake that's in the models. They've sent um, this error report off to the IPCC. Co et al. have sent the error report off and they determined that if CO2 was to double, um, the temp maximum temperature rise would be point five degrees Celsius, including all water vapour feedback effects, and that if methane was to double, that would be 0 0.06 degrees Celsius, and if nitrous oxide was to double, it would be 0 0.08 degrees Celsius. And you've got a, a Mr Frank who's pointed out that because of the dis discretized finite element model um, in these models and the fact that um, the, they're not closed form equations, so there has to be a numerical solution and it's got to run billions and billions of times. He basically says the results that come out are completely meaningless. And if you look at the temperature predictions from all of these 
climate models, they all head up in a moonshot to sort of positive infinity. The only model that stays close to reality is a Russian model, which is based on sunspots. So time and again, uh, Comrade Adern and Comrade Shaw have been sent these papers and challenged to refute them on a scientifically valid basis, and they will not acknowledge them. That is an absolute disgrace. They know they have no justification for what they're doing, and it is just... and. And again, um, not only do you now have these indoctrinated young people coming through, but at school they've been indoctrinated to the point where they think life isn't worth living or whatever for an absolute non-crisis. Yeah, I'm glad you've addressed them as, you know, Comrade Arden. And yeah, communists should be called out for what they are. And when you were speaking about the fact that North Korea is the other place where lights don't shine, I have a friend of mine who immigrated to New Zealand from Romania, and she has very clear memory of growing up in communist Romania under, I think it was Nicolae Ceausescu, to probably yep, murder yep. his name. Yep. And she talks of the fact of setting her alarm for 2.30 or 3 a.m. in the morning. So going to bed, fully dressed in lots of layers. And at that time in the morning, the gas would be supplied and she could cook for her family. So at 2.30 in the morning and then by four o'clock, everything would be off for the day. So that's how she says every every day my alarm was for two o'clock in the morning, get up, go to the loo and then wait for the gas to come on, quickly cook whatever else needs to be done and survive. And I was laughing one day with that. I said, so Ella, what do you think is going to happen? She says, well, she says one day, the hungry and the freezing will unite in New Zealand, just as they did over there, and throw this over. I said, well, there's an idea. That's one reality check. I think that's unmissable, regardless of which side you are on, you know, labor or national or whatever. For me, they're all the same. And I'm sure uh, Don agrees. He's often said just a tissue paper between their policies. <laughs> yeah, oh, there is. Uh, <laughs> sorry, John. Yeah, but oh, you know, I, in, in the end, um, common sense has to prevail. Uh, the country's in a dire strait. I know it sounds all negative at the end of a really long interview. Um, sounds negative to talk about the, the parlous state our finances are likely to be on when they declare them on September 12. Um, we got problems, and there's only good people going to stand up are going to fix them. And uh, we need more people like John Scarry and Jaspreet and and our colleagues to to make a lot of noise about this stuff and get New Zealand back on a um, on an even keel because we're going to take years to get out of this hole. Mm. We are. Mm. And today, I I think one should we keep talking at every instance possible. I had our LIC rep turn uh, you know turn up this uh, afternoon uh, at my doorstep with some tags and other things, and I got chatting to her. And speaking about where we are heading and what's going on. And, you know, I was talking about all this diversity nonsense that's coming through many of our co-ops and our levy bodies. And so we chatted about the fact that, oh, COVID nonsense. And she said, you know, I had to take a couple because of something. And I said, that's fine. I said, but, you know, I wasn't allowed to uh, enter the swimming pool during the swim lessons for my children. But yet I could go and swim alone. That was perfectly fine when the club was not on. So I said, that was the science. But she agreed with me that the cultural issues that many of, just like you speak about engineering, uh, John, the same thing is happening in rural 
advocacy bodies, um, rural co-ops. And I told her, I said, look, cultural sensitivity, I do that perfectly fine. We have staff here, some of them who don't have meat or egg. And I make sure if there's nothing else, there's at least cheese rolls at the cow shed for Smoko so that the people who don't have anything else, they'll have that. We have staff here on our farm who don't have beef. Now, my husband and I do. But I'll make sure if they are coming over for dinner or after a long uh, you know, day, your husband's getting them over beer and a bite. I make sure I have chicken or some other options there. I am culturally sensitive, sensitive, but don't force it down my throat. Don't legislate cultural sensitivity to me. That is where my issue lies. Just do your job. Do it well. And the rest of us can take care of ourselves. Thank you very much. Well, they actually, a few years ago, instead of, well, didn't, instead of, again, addressing issues within engineering, what was set up was this organisation called the Diversity Agenda. And it's gone really crazy in the last couple of years. But you visit the website and you see this tale of why. And um, sorry, Jasper, many of them are women with these tales of woe. <laughs> and it's right. like, oh, I, you know, I haven't been treated with respect because I'm a woman and I've been ridiculed and things like that. And then it'll be things like, I'm doing this so that people who come along behind me don't have to go through what I did. Well, oh. what did they have to go through? They had to slave their guts out in a very demanding architecture or engineering degree for four or five years at university. And then graduate and discover they actually don't know anything and are thrown mm. in the deep end. They may be abused by uh, draftsmen or senior people with a chip on their shoulder. A lot of contractors will particularly get stuck into them if they're young people. It's not the fact that they're woman or non-binary or whatever. It hits <laughs> us all. And, um, and, like, you know, there was one particular person who was going on about this and that. And yet an engineer I know said, well, she's got 20 years of experience and I had to sit, he had to sit down and explain basic engineering principles to her and she still couldn't understand it. I mean, I, you know, I, um, as a graduate, I was treated like crap and you have, you get treated badly by contractors. In one instance, I actually got assaulted. I turned up to a, a house one day. These um, people were put in, in a, um, uh, just a, um, you know, a new driveway or whatever, someone had phoned up and this chap was worried about what was being constructed. So I went around and there was all the swearing and abuse and then suddenly everything went black. And I'm looking up and I'm looking through a hedge. Someone had come <laughs> along and pushed me into the hedge. Fortunately, it didn't hit me with a shovel or whatever. And it was like, oh, this is a relief I can leave. And I didn't go on a tale of woe or anything like that. The tale of woe that I have is that when I was a graduate, when I asked sensible questions, I couldn't get sensible answers, and that my disgust at the fact that serious problems haven't been addressed. Everyone can come up with their own tale of woe of identity issues and all of this stuff, but it's absolute crap. Basically, in engineering, if you're pleasant and as a draftsman or an engineer and you're willing to do your job, you're respected for it. And I bumped into a, a, a colleague and, you know, he'll say, um, I've got some graduates who are really good and some graduates who are not. It's got nothing to do with their race or sexuality mm. or whatever. It's about their personal characteristics. 
And hopefully some of the ones who are not so good will mature and learn. But if you just degenerate off into a self-pity you know, thing or whatever, you're not going to improve at all. And there yeah. you have it. And, uh, is yeah. the recipe ended on? That is the recipe. And, um, you know, John, we we loved uh, hearing your recipe and your experiences and, and over two a series of two interviews. It's been great having you on our show. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how all the stuff you've talked about evolves. Let's hope it um, some of it just goes away and some of it's improved. But um, we've got things happening in the next few months, as, as we're all aware, the election and uh, and things like that. We'll see how that goes, and then we'll see uh, whether we can get you back after that. But uh, it's been great having you on our show and sharing your fireside experiences as well as your real um, and concerning um, output regarding your structural uh, engineering industry. So great having you here. Thanks for the thanks for everything, John. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And I'd like to thank uh, both of you individually for the enormous effort you do put in trying to turn these things around in different ways. And it is extremely frustrating. Because one puts in more effort than the other, and she's on the <laughs> other side. <laughs> Thanks, thank John. you, gentlemen. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio.